Hi everyone, welcome to the very first ever episode of What's the Crime? My name's Gronya and I'm Gemma. We are sisters and we have decided to do our very own true crime podcast because we, we are murderers and <laughs> <laughs> aside from that we are obsessed with true crime. So every week I will be researching a story and I will tell the story to Gemma. Can't wait. And on this podcast, I wanted to tell true crime cases that have been solved, you know, where we like find out what happens. Yeah, no cliffhangers. There's nothing worse for me whenever I listen to a full story and I don't know what happens in the end. It's just, I cannot I'm the same. I hate that too. I need to know. You always be thinking about it. Yeah, like need to know. (laughs) Okay, so we hope you enjoy our very first ever episode. Let's get started. Okay, so for our first ever episode, I'm going to tell you the story of Cassie Joe Stoddart. This is a terrifying story. It honestly just reminds me of a horror film. So Cassie Joe Stoddart has been described as a typical teenage girl. She loved music and drawing. She was born in Pocatello, Idaho in 1989, which made her 16 in 2006, which was the time of the events. And she was a straight A student. She was responsible. She was smart. Um, I seen some photos of her online as well. And she's absolutely beautiful. She was at that age where she was trying to gain some independence and she wanted to buy her own car. So when her aunt and uncle asked her if she would watch their animals and house sit for them when they were going out of town for the weekend, she was like, absolutely, no problem. Um, All she really had to do was like feed their animals. They had three cats and two dogs and they were going to pay her. I mean, that's the dream job when you're 16. dream job when you're 16. I was actually 16 in 2006 as well. So you would have been the same age. So her aunt and uncle, Alison and Frank and their daughter headed off on their trip on the 22nd of September 2006. Cassie had asked them if her boyfriend, Matt Beckham, could come over and hang out with her. And that kind of just shows that she is responsible because, you know, she's asking them if he could come over. They had been together for about five months, which is a lifetime because they were in high school at the time. Yeah, it's like five years in (laughs) secondary school. And the aunt and uncle agreed this is absolutely fine. They knew she was a good girl. She was responsible and... You know, they trusted her with their house. They weren't worried about her inviting more people or throwing a house party or anything like that. Anything that we would probably do. (laughs) Just about to say anything that that we would have done at that age. So on that Friday evening, her boyfriend, Matt, comes over at around 6 p.m. But he also invited their two other friends over, Brian Draper and Tori Adamkick. Yes, these boys were friends with Matt, but they were also friends with Cassie. They all went to the same school. They were around the same age in the same year. And she was a little bit annoyed at the start of Matt for asking them over. She was like, I hadn't asked my aunt and uncle if they could come over. I just asked if you could come over. And he's like, look, it's fine. You know, they're not going to stay that long. She's like, OK, that's fine. She gives them a tour of the house, including the basement. And then they all go down to sit and watch a film together. They start to watch Kill Bill and Brian and Tori, the two friends, they are like well known among their friend group for being film critics. Like they're obsessed with movies and they even make their own. They carry about this little like camcorder and they're a little bit like, you know what, this is actually sad. We thought this was going to be a party and if we want to watch a film, we may as well go to the cinema and see something new that's out. So they leave 
and they leave Cassie and Matt behind. So a short while after they leave, while Matt and Cassie are watching the TV, about 15 minutes later, the power goes out. So immediately Cassie is a little bit freaked out. She's panicking. Matt is telling her it's fine. It's just a power outage, but understandably, she's a little bit scared. They do not go and investigate or try to find the power circuit box. They just say they just stay in the sitting room. And then when some of the power comes back on, they're like, OK, it's fine. But not all of the power comes back on. Okay. One of the dogs is also acting strange. It's standing at the top of the stairs and it's looking down toward the basement and it's barking and it's staring down and it's growling. Okay, well, can I just say, I'm out of that house. That's me and I'm taking the dogs with me. I was just about to say that. And I am not turning back. But anyway, go ahead. What about the cats? You to take the cats, too. Well, we'll see if I had to grab something first for the dogs. <laughs> so Cassie is understandably scared. So Matt rings his mum and he asks her if it's okay if he stays the night. She says no. I mean, well, they are only 16. There'll be no one else in the house and she doesn't want him to stay over. So he says, you know, Cassie's scared. He tells her about the power situation. And his mum says, look, I don't want you to stay there, but Cassie can come to our house and I can drop her home in the morning. But Cassie, she kind of feels like her aunt and uncle left her the responsibility to stay and, you know... She'd be letting them down. She'd be letting them down, exactly. And I mean, it's probably, she's like, maybe I'm being dramatic and I don't want, you know, it's my first time doing this. Yeah, exactly. She's like, if I leave, they're going to not let me do this again. Yeah. So anyway, his mum picks him up at 10.30pm, leaving Cassie at the house alone. So when he's left, he calls Tori's cell phone to see where Tori and Brian were. He's kind of thinking, um, you know, they can meet up themselves later. Um, But he can't hear him on the phone because Tori is whispering and he assumes, okay, they're still at the movie theatre. Okay, so Matt can't hear Tori on the phone. Yes. Right. So over the weekend, on the Saturday, the next day, Matt is trying to call Cassie and he can't get in touch with her. She's not answering her phone. So the following day, fast forward to Sunday, September 24th, 2006, the Contreras family returned home. So Cassie Joe's 13-year-old cousin was the first person to enter the house. So she notices the door was unlocked, which is a little bit strange considering they usually locked it. And she runs in and that's when she discovers the horror scene in front of her. There was blood everywhere and on the sitting room floor lay Cassie's lifeless body detectives would find that Cassie had been stabbed approximately 30 times. Oh my God. I know. The police obviously firstly want to talk to Matt. He's her boyfriend. He's the last person that's seen her alive. Yeah, so I'm kind of thinking, this is her boyfriend. He left her on Friday night. She was petrified. The dog was acting strange, growling at the basement. And he tries to ring her on Saturday. He can't get through, so he just thinks, presumes she's okay. That, to me, is a bit, what's going on there? Yeah, I know. I mean, you can probably put that down to his age, like they're 16 and maybe he just doesn't want to come across too needy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it is weird. But anyway, um, they question Matt. He tells them what happened. He says that their two friends, Brian and Tori, were there as well. And then they left. And then he himself left at around 10.30 p.m. So he tells them as well about the power situation and the dog. He said that one of the dogs was growling and running back and forth in the home. Matt then took a polygraph test, which he passed with flying colours. I absolutely hate polygraph tests. I don't understand why they're used. They can't be used in court. 
So, like, you can't tell when someone is lying. I don't think that they should still be a thing. Okay. But anyway, that's not even okay, a part of this story. <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> okay, so naturally enough, the detectives then want to speak to Brian and Tori. They went to interview Brian at his home on September 25th. And they stated that they were there to investigate Cassie's murder and the events surrounding it. So straight away, he starts to cry. And to me, I just think alarm bells. Like, why is he crying when the police are there? Yeah, but also he is her friend and he's found out that she's been brutally murdered. I mean, okay. I hope my friends would cry too. <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. It's okay, so he's starting to cry and he tells them that they went to go and see a movie called Pulse, him and Tori. So when asked by detectives about this movie and what happened, he couldn't remember what the movie was about, what happened in it, who was in it. He just said that it was boring. Now, for someone that was so interested in films, making his own films, even if you hated the film, you'd remember something about it. Yeah. Like anything. So that interview was concluded and he was interviewed again then the following day on September 26th, 2006. This time it was down at the Pocatello police station. And during this interview, he told detectives that he and Tori had gone to see the movie Pulse again but still could not describe anything that happened in the movie at all. The detectives told him that they didn't believe him, obviously, because they're like, okay, if you went to see this film, obviously you would know what's happening in it. And he's like, okay, we didn't go and see the film. We actually went to steal cars. So he still denied going back to the house where Cassie was staying or having any involvement in her death. And then he left with his parents and that interview was concluded. So I think they're already looking suspicious. I mean, they've lied now twice. Yeah, I know. I mean, I get that. But if he's telling the truth and they did go and leave her house and steal some cars, they're not going to tell the police that. That's why he lied. You know, that's why he said he couldn't remember the film. Yeah, but if you're being investigated for your friend's murder, you're going to be like, okay, I was stealing cars. True. But you, you don't know. You just don't know. Anyway, go ahead. Okay. So... Brian's parents gave detectives permission after the second interview to search his bedroom. In this search, they found a knife sheath under his bed. So Is that like a, ni- a cover? Of yeah, a knife? that's like a, a cover that goes over a big knife. And he's like, no, it's not mine. The old reliable, it belongs to my friend. And he also said he didn't know where the knife was, but that friend must have that knife. So they bring him in for a third interview on Wednesday, September 27th, 2006. And this interview is not available to be viewed, but documents summarize what he said in this interview. He basically admitted him and Tori did not leave and go to the movies like they had said, nor did they go and steal cars. Instead, while they were at Cassie's house, one of them pretended to go to the bathroom and unlocked the basement door from the inside so that when they left, they would still be able to get access from the house from the outside with the intentions of coming back to scare Cassie and Matt. They also admitted to breaking stuff and slamming doors to scare them so that they would come downstairs. So they found the circuit breaker and they turned off the power in the house, hoping that Cassie and Matt would come downstairs to check the breaker. When they did not come downstairs, they turned some of the lights back on. So remember when I said that the power went out and then it kind of came back on not that long later? That was them. Okay. From the basement, they heard Matt leave. 
And again, they turned the lights out at the circuit breaker and waited, hoping that Cassie would come downstairs and turn the lights back on, but she didn't. So eventually, they went upstairs. Brian was armed with a dagger-type weapon and Tori had a hunting-style knife and Cassie was lying on the couch in the living room. Brian said that Tori walked in front of him towards Cassie and stabbed her. He thought that they were pulling a joke on him, but once he saw her wounds, he no longer believed it was a joke. He said that he stood watching and he wondered what Tori was doing because, quote, it was supposed to be a joke. He said that Tori had done all the stabbing with his knife and Draper said that he did not stab or touch Cassie. Then, So Draper is Brian, Brian Draper? Yes, Brian Draper, sorry. So Brian then told detectives that they had to dispose of the evidence and he was like, okay, I'm going to show you where we buried it. So he led them to Black Rock Canyon where they had disposed of the stuff that they used. So they had masks, knives, they had these like really terrifying white ski masks that they actually wore during the murder. It's literally like, it's like a horror film. I mean, it's like Scream. It is like, it's actually nicknamed the Scream murder. And I just think, can you imagine how terrifying that must have been for her in the house by herself? Oh my God. And it's got all the makings of a horror film. I know. Baby, well, not babysitting, house sitting on your own, young girl coming in in these ski masks. Like you, like, I, I can't even think of it. So they also find where they'd buried this evidence that they find a homemade Sony videotape recorder. So like I said, remember that the boys, you know, recorded their own movies and stuff. Yeah. Now, they didn't actually record the murder, but what they did record was the time coming up to the murder and the time after the murder. So basically like a, v- a vlog of the murder? Yes, what we would call a vlog in today's oh society. Gosh. So... You can actually watch this footage online as well. So according to the transcripts of the tape, shortly after the murder, they went to buy the movie tickets at the cinema to build an alibi. And after they had murdered Cassie, they kind of like exchanged a recap of what happened. So this is 11.31 p.m. that night. So just an hour after Matt left. Brian, I just killed Cassie. We just left her house. This is not a fucking joke. Tori, I'm shaking. Brian, I stabbed her in the throat and I saw her lifeless body. It just disappeared, dude. I just killed Cassie. So these transcripts were made available by Parkman Magazine. And they, the day before the murder, they'd also been recorded, September 21st, 2006. Um, they're recording themselves in a car. Uh, Tori is driving and Brian is filming from the passenger seat. So... Quote, Brian, we found our victim and sad as it may be, she's our friend. But you know what? We all have to make sacrifices. Our first victim is going to be Cassie Stoddart and her friends. So this is before the murder now? This is before the murder they've recorded themselves. We'll find out if she has friends over, if she's going to be alone in a big dark house out in the middle of nowhere. How perfect can you get? I mean, like, holy shit, dude. Tori, I'm horny just thinking about it. Brian, hell yeah. So we're going to fucking kill her and her friends and we're going to keep moving. So I heard some news about, they've also named someone else here, but her name has been left out to protect her. Right. She's going to be home alone from six to seven. So we might kill her and drive over to Cassie's thing and scare the shit out of them and kill them one by fucking one. Hell yeah. 
Tori, why one by one? Why can't it be a slaughterhouse? Brian, two by two and three by three then, because we've got to keep it classy. Tori, keep it classy. Brian, so yeah, it's going to be extra fun. So it's clearly premeditated. The whole thing, not only were they planning on killing Cassie, but... They are planning on killing more people. Exactly. So they're just absolute weirdos. They're weirdos. Not only are they weirdos, they're like these weird wannabes. They go on to compare themselves to the likes of Ted Bundy and the Hillside Strangler. Brian, we're going to be murderers. Like, let's see, Ted Bundy, like the Hillside Strangler. Tori, no. Brian, the Zodiac Killer? Tori, those people were mere amateurs compared to what we are going to be. Well, I'm sorry, but they're comparing themselves to these serial killers and saying that they're amateurs, yet... They didn't even go and watch the film that they were going to use as their alibi. <laughs> like, not only are they weirdos, they're stupid and pathetic. And I go ahead. <laughs> and like, even after the first interview, when they're like, okay, they're going to ask us about this film. They still didn't watch I it. I know. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, they also recorded Cassie on the morning of the murder. I just find this so sad because there's this footage of Cassie and it's online and she's just standing at her locker at school. And she's just looking like shy and Brian says, hey, look, it's Cassie. Hello, Cassie. She says, hello. And then he's like, I'm getting you on tape. Okay, say hi, please. And she's like, hi. And it's just so sad that she's there and she's like, oh, they're making another silly film. And little does she know they're making this creepy documentary about her murder. Oh, right. So... Even though both of the boys tried to blame each other, it's clear from the footage that the murder was planned, premeditated. They were both in on it and they had planned to kill more people as well. They were arrested on September 27th, just three days after Cassie's body was found. They were both charged with first degree murder and conspiracy to commit first degree murder. So I know we haven't really heard anything from Tory, but... I assume he just didn't want to talk to the police or refused because the only interviews that I can really find any information on is the interviews that the police had with Brian. So in Brian's defense, he tried to get a reduced sentence by reassuring the judge that, you know, he was remorseful and he did the right thing by leading the police to the evidence. He led them to, obviously, all the evidence that they had buried that was the thing that got them arrested in the end. Quote, All I ask you is to give me the punishment I deserve for my part in this crime. That is the only way I will be able to find some sort of closure by getting what I deserve. Puke. I know. I hate him. I hate him too. So Tori, on the other hand, he continued to deny that he had any really major part in the murder. So... You know, you can hear from the tapes that Brian is the one that's saying, I just killed Cassie. You know, I just seen her lifeless body, all of this. Yeah. Tori doesn't ever actually say, I killed Cassie or I stabbed. In the tapes. In the tapes. Right. So he's like, look, um, you know, I didn't say it. I was just there. I was just standing back watching. And Tori, quote, I feel terrible for Cassie's family and my family and friends, and especially for Cassie. What happened to her was monstrous, unquote. So... The judge, thankfully, Judge McDermott, uh, he said he was convinced that the boys methodically planned out and executed their friend's murder together, which they did, obviously. Yeah. Quote, you've ruined your lives. You've taken Cassie's life from her family. You will each serve a life sentence fixed without the possibility of parole. 
their attorneys actually filed for separate appeals at the state Supreme Court in September 2010 and April 2011. Um, I think it was something to do with the fact that they were only 16 when they were charged and they were charged as adults, so they kind of took a look back at it. But again, thankfully, both were denied and they are still in prison. Tori's mother, Shannon Adamkick, she actually wrote a book about this. Um, it's called Guilty Innocent. So it's kind of about what happened, about her son's part in it. And obviously it's not written objectively. She's his mum. So she's saying her son's innocent? Pretty much, yeah. She's like, you know, he didn't have a good defence team. And, you know, I didn't actually read the book, I'll be honest, because... As far as I'm concerned, the footage is there. You can see that they were both in on it. They were planning on killing other people. Like, it's black and white. Yeah. So she says, quote, I've done copious amounts of research, but more importantly, I take readers step by step through what it feels like when your 16-year-old son is accused of first-degree murder. All the odds are stacked against him, and his defence team is in the hands of attorneys you can't fully trust to come through for you, unquote. I just, I'm sorry. I just something even feels off about the way she's that introduction. I take readers on a step by step. I mean, it's not a a self help book. Yeah, it's not a self help book. <laughs> I mean, no. Yeah, I know. I get it. It's almost kind of like her ploy to for fame or something as well. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm like, no, I'm not reading the book. I don't care what she has to say. The footage is there in black and white. They planned the murder, and Cassie is the one that lost her life. And as sad as it is for her to lose her son and what she must be going through, her son and his friends' actions and choices mean that Cassie Joe's family have lost their daughter forever. Okay, guys, we hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can tune in next week for a brand new episode of What's the Crime? And please like and subscribe. And also you can catch us on Instagram or Facebook at What's the Crime? Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you.